The Guardian. I hear Carcetti's going to do right by you. Salary with the coordinating council, then a DC job. You deserve it? Sure, I deserve it. But not for doing the job. What I got, they gave me for carrying their water all these years. To Carcetti, I'm a hack. Maybe I am. But every day they send over a new priority. Go after the bad guys. No, change that. Make quality of life cases. Get on top of the murders. On second thought, run the whores out of Patterson Park. You think the mayor tells the schools how to teach kids or the health department how to do its job or sanitation, how to pick up trash, but get elected and suddenly they know police work. <laughs> police Commissioner Evan Burrell there from the classic Baltimore-based drama The Wire tutoring his deputy on the rocky relationship between the police and politicians. And it's not just in Baltimore. The intersection of policing and high politics is a hot issue here too, causing debate and division, ending high-flying careers. I'm resigning not because of any failures by my service and not because of the pressures of the office and the many stories that surround it are too much. I have this afternoon informed the palace Home Secretary and the Mayor of my intention to resign as Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police Service. I've taken this decision as a consequence of the ongoing speculation... Yes, last week saw Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Paul Stevenson resign from Scotland Yard after failing to deal effectively with the hacking of thousands of phones by News of the World journalists. He was also confronted with allegations of information being sold by his officers to the press and his own decision to accept hospitality from a top-line health spa with links to the former deputy editor of the News of the World. This is the second time in less than three years that the Mets commissioner has resigned. Ian Blair went in 2009. Prior to that, no commissioner had jumped early or had been pushed for more than 100 years. This is a very big deal. So what's going on with the Met? Are they a forcing crisis? I'm Hugh Muir, and in this week's Focus podcast, we'll be looking at what went wrong in the UK's largest police force and what challenges face the Met in the future. We'll be talking to former senior police officers, politicians and academics, all with strong views on an ongoing crisis. I'm here at City Hall, which is where the Metropolitan Police Authority has its main meetings. Um, once a month, I think they are. And I'm with Jenny Jones, who's a member of that committee, also a Green Party member here at the London Assembly. Once again, for the second time in about three years, I think it is, the Metropolitan Police is having to put a, a sign up in the window, situations vacant, new commissioner needed. Why is that? I think it's just got very political. And I think Boris Johnson, when he did in effect, sack Ian Blair, set up a new sort of standard for behaviour um, for the mayor. And it took on a little bit more power, if you like. We gave the post to somebody that we thought could steady the ship, safe pair of hands, all that sort of thing. But actually, of course, as it gets more political, that sort of person isn't very good, isn't very sure-footed. And so I think he was absolutely the right person for two years. But then he he missed his footing, basically, on more than one occasion. And perhaps we should have given a two-year contract. So Stevenson's gone, John Yates has gone. Is this about personalities or is this about structure? I think it's a mix, actually. I think if their personality is such that they really do care what other people are saying about them, then they're just bound to fall foul of the media and other politicians and so on. 
For the next commissioner, we really do have to have somebody who's very independent. It can't be somebody who's going to do everything that the mayor wants to do. That's just mad. The mayor doesn't know what he wants for policing in London, apart from driving crime down. That's his only, that's his one headline. And the person has to, I think, answer to Londoners more than to the press and to politicians. It's not people like us who should be dictating. This week's been so seismic that it almost represents an opportunity, doesn't it? Almost a chance to start again and address some of the things that you were perhaps concerned about um, before the fall of Sir Paul Stevenson. What might they be? Definitely the issue of police corruption, because I've been told many times by senior police officers that they really do care about corruption, and I'm sure they do. But where's the evidence for that? Where are all the police officers? And it looks as if we're talking dozens rather than a few. Where are all those police officers who are actually being uh, sacked or convicted? I mean, we really ought to be seeing some evidence of pressure on every single officer to be as incorruptible as possible. What about the structure? Because it does strike me that we've now had two commissioners who have effectively said, I might have taken a better decision if I had all of the information at the time. Now, surely the structure should guarantee that they do have the information they need to take good decisions. So does that tell you there's something systemic wrong here? That's absolutely true, because in fact, the police use a command and control structure, which means that information filters up through the ranks to senior officers. And that means that you lose information on the way, and the judgments are being made by lower rank officers all the time. Now, if they're very talented officers, they will be passing the right information up, but they could be making the wrong call at the information they pass up. So, yes, it's, it's a real problem. Hello, Mr. Livingston. Hello, hi, You'll get my vote. Oh, thanks. I just need another million. Get all your family <laughs> in and friends. Finally, my house. Oh, hello. Hi, nice to see you. Yes, you look shocked. <laughs> well, There's an election coming. Watching it all with studied interest from the election trail is Ken Livingstone. He had responsibility for the Met during two terms as mayor. Today, he's in Hearn Hill, talking to local residents as part of his long-running campaign to retake the mayoralty. Get a chance to vote next year. Make sure your family on the register. They went to Boris and they said, we've looked at this and there doesn't seem to be any more, more anything in it. If they'd come to you and said that, do you think you would have accepted oh, no. that quite so easily? That, that's exactly why I had around me people like Redmond O'Neill and Simon Fletcher and John Ross who go and get stuck into a bureaucracy. And don't forget, by that stage, you're in a position the mayor could chair the Metropolitan Police Authority. And I think that's the point at which you know, say, that's fine. Now we just want to actually look into all of this stuff. And at that stage, we would have most probably just come across the Whittemore stuff in Nick Davis's book as well. I most probably would have invited Nick Davis to come in and tell us what he thought. I mean, that's the, the obvious and bizarre thing. Say you win hmm. uh, the, the next election. What would you do with the police now? In a way, this is an opportunity, well, isn't it? Because things have been so bad that you can almost start again. You, you can, and it should be seized. I mean, I'm hoping it'll all be sorted out before the election. I really don't want this still to be festering there a year's time because public confidence is going to be completely undermined. But no, I'll take the same activist approach because, I mean, one of the very few things this government's doing that I agree with is strengthening the powers of the mayor vis-a-vis the Metropolitan Police Authority, and I shall approach the police next time round as I approached Transport for London last time around. It'll be much more direct intervention. And I think that the legal balance has changed, but also the general political climate. People would have been very worried about me trying to intervene directly in what was happening in the Met. And I think now they'll be delighted that someone is prepared to do that. Do you envisage any taking the Met in a different direction policy-wise? Have you no. looked? I mean, I think the Met's been going in a very good direction. 
fall in crime hasn't gone down as much as I think it should have done, but that I think is because you know there's quite a degree of disruption when Ian Blair was forced out, and I think there's a layer of demoralisation now as officers are not. We had a year in which officers weren't when they moved on, their posts weren't filled. As now sergeants, you've got to come in, and I'll be coming in saying any cut in frontline policing is going to be restored and the focus is on Bobby's on the beat and keeping the pressure down on crime. So you've got to re-energise the Met, make it feel enthusiastic. Um, quick, if Boris hasn't cleared out the dodgy officers, I mean, we'll clear them out and then we'll get on to the task of actually getting Bobby's back on the beat and crime coming down again. Ken Livingston on the streets of Herne Hill, South London there. Lots of interesting points raised by Ken and also by Jenny Jones before that. And joining me to chew over some of the difficulties facing the Met in the future is a big figure from the past. David Gilbertson's a former Deputy Assistant Commissioner there and a keen observer of events since at Scotland Yard. I mean, David, you've seen a lot, I'm sure, and uh, once you were part of the the service there from Scotland Yard, but uh, even you must have been absolutely amazed at what you've seen this week. I was slack-jawed with horror at the... um at the appearance of some former colleagues before the Home Affairs Parliamentary Committee, I was saddened by that. Can I just preface my comments by saying that uh, in, in terms of individuals, in terms of Paul Stevenson and John Yates, they are eminently, in my view, they are eminently honest men. Are, there's no doubt about their probity. There's no doubt about their, the, the, the way that they manage their careers. Right. The big issue for them, I think, is that they made the wrong judgment calls. And somebody said to me a long time ago that if you're at the top of an organisation, you're there to make the grey decisions. Any idiot can make the black and white decisions. It's the grey decisions. They don't come along very often. And when they do come along, you justify every penny of your £200,000 a year or whatever. And they made the wrong judgment calls. But why would that be? Would that be about them or would that be about the situations they're put in? And there I'm thinking, how much of this is about the politics? Right. It's, it's, uh, it's systemic. One of the problems with the management board structure in the Metropolitan Police is that all of the very, very efficient departments, there are five, six departments, they all operate in silos. The silos don't talk to each other. The heads of business units seldom talk to each other. Talk to each other. And what you need... And what you haven't got in the Met is an executive chief of staff, someone who is helicoptering above the business units, drawing out from them uh, all the vulnerabilities, all of the issues that need to be drawn together, stringing them then together in a a coherent form and putting them before the commissioner. But how does does the politics... Um, intrude upon what a commissioner has to do. I mean, clearly, when they take the job, that's part of the job. But has it got to the point where it interferes so much that it's difficult for them to do the job? Are you talking party politics or are you talking organisational politics? Well, actually, party but external politics, the demands made on them by their political masters. Uh, in, in, terms of, um, in terms of the intrusion of uh, outside forces from a political point of view... Uh, that depends on the strength of character of the commissioner, very much so. Uh, if you are someone that wants to be identified with uh, uh, the, um, the government of the day, and I'll put no names on that, then you're, I think you're, you're cruising for a bruising, frankly. You should always remember that operationally the commissioner has complete freedom. He shouldn't be, he shouldn't be pushed by the, the winds of change in, in, in government at all. Uh, we haven't had, and 
uh, I'll choose my words carefully, we haven't had in the last decade a commissioner who has been strong enough to stand up to uh, the forces from Number 10 and the forces from now from City Hall. Do you sense that this mayor has, has applied more pressure or, or placed more demands on the commissioner? There have been two under this last mayoralty than, than you've seen previously? Uh, Colleagues that I'm still in touch with tell me, so um, I'm, not, I'm not naming names, no names, no pack drill. They tell me that um, Kit Malthouse more, um, Boris Johnson less, uh, are very much a, a factor in their life. But of course, there was that famous quote, wasn't there, that we, uh, from Kit Malthouse, we have the, our hands on the tiller. The, do do, do our, our officers aware of those hands on the tiller? Yeah, he has his hands on the tiller. He also has his hands on the till, and that's the most important <laughs> that's thing. That's more important. Well, look, we've been really busy on this, David, because we thought it would be good to talk to people who really uh, know what's going on, you being one. Um, and we had a chat with someone that you'll know well, the former assistant commissioner, Brian Paddock. I had a conversation with Paul Stevenson when he first became deputy commissioner of the Met. He told me that he already had his time in for a pension, and that if you got to the stage where it got too difficult and he wasn't enjoying it, he would go. And that was when he was deputy. So I'm not surprised. When it did get difficult, he went. And were you surprised to hear him say that? Because that is a job that will inevitably get difficult. I mean, it almost means that he was never going to be there very long from the outset. Well, two things happened. I mean, on the day that Jean-Charles Menezes was shot, and I knew that he was innocent, I went and saw the Deputy Commissioner... Paul Stevenson, because I thought Ian Blair's decision to keep out the IPCC was the most stupid decision I ever made, I've ever heard in my life, and I told that to Stevenson. And with a big grin on his face, he said, it's my job to support the commissioner. So two things I discovered about Stevenson early on. One was he was after Ian Blair's job, and two, that he wouldn't stick around if it got too tough for him. We need to change the system so there is an independent appointment and not a politically... Uh, driven appointment of the Commissioner of the Police for the Metropolis. The second issue is the last Commissioner to stay the term was John Stevens. Was not liked. He was a very hard character. He at times literally had senior officers by their lapels up against his office wall. Now, I don't think you need to go that far, but you need to have a very tough individual And, of course, that's exactly the sort of person politicians don't want. They want somebody who's going to do as they're told, who's going to keep a low profile, who's not going to cause them any problems. So how how do we find someone who is? Is it, do we have a shortage of those people? Is that the problem? Yeah, we do have a shortage of those sorts of people because, you know, you have to keep your powder dry for long enough to get into the top position. You have to, you know, make yourself appointable as commissioner. You have to give politicians some confidence that you are a safe pair of hands. But at the same time, you know, you need to be that very robust character once you get your hands on the controls, which is what Stevens managed to do. Can you have these kind of machinations on the top without it having an effect on the rank and file and on operations at ground level? I mean, to a large extent, it doesn't make any difference to uh, officers on the beat. And I was talking to someone Sunday, uh, within an hour or so, of the commissioner resigning. And they just sort of shrugged their shoulders and basically said they would get on with the job. Um, It does make a difference at the top level. Um, You need to have a strong character managing these different fiefdoms uh, controlled by these individual assistant commissioners. 
And what both Blair and Stevenson failed to do was to interrogate and pin down the senior officers who were under their command and actually say, are you sure about the identity of the person we shot at Stockwell? Are you sure that the review you've done into phone hacking is right? You sure there's nothing else to be discovered? Instead, they took the word of their senior people. You cannot afford to do that in a, an organisation where the assistant commissioners are vying for each other in terms of power, they're vying for each other in terms of resources, and mistakes that are made by them or within their department can have a significant effect on that power struggle and resource allocation. They have a vested interest in keeping embarrassing information away from the boss. Just lastly, you've looked to City Hall where the mayor has his office and you've thought, well, I can do a job there. Um, if London had a, a rush of collective wisdom and you were to be given that job, what would you do vis-a-vis the police? What would be in your entry? You know, again, you know, the, the, uh, we had that very embarrassing bit of video with uh, Boris Johnson last September, having been briefed by John Yates, uh, saying that all of this phone hacking business was just a labour uh, conspiracy to cast doubt on Cameron's leadership. Codswallop. Uh, he referred to it as Codswallop. Uh, and it just shows you what you do, what what happens if you take senior police officers' words for it. It's a, it might be an indictment of the police service that we have, but we've got to re, you've got to realise these as when you become a senior police officer, you become a politician with a small p, and nobody trusts politicians, and the mayor shouldn't either. Some strong views there from Brian Paddock. Um, And he did highlight this difficulty, didn't he? Because if you're a commissioner, you have to delegate. It's such a big organisation. Absolutely. But then you have to supervise as well. And I think what surprised many people watching uh, the commissioner before the Home Affairs Committee this, uh, uh, this week was that there were so many occasions when he just said, I didn't know, I took that, I accepted that. Um, it's very difficult to strike that balance, isn't it? In a sense, it goes back to my earlier point, and you know, I know Brian well. There's a couple of good anecdotes there, but he, he, he I think he underlined my my point about silos. People don't talk to each other. I don't necessarily subscribe to his description of the Yard as being a completely dysfunctional organisation. He made it sound a bit like the Nazi party in the 30s where no one was telling the Fuhrer what was going on. That isn't quite the case. I'm sure we're not there yet. Uh, I'm sure we're not going to get there either. (laughs) But the the fact remains, I I, I stick to my earlier point. You have a very big organisation, a lot of very talented people, and a lot of functions that are being discharged, and someone needs to draw together all the vulnerabilities, and that isn't being done, and it hasn't been done for a long time. Very interesting, his point about John Stevens. I knew John Stevens when I was there. You never had your lapels grabbed. He never had your lapels grabbed, but he was an interesting person. The rank-and-file officers would have crawled over broken glass for John Stevens. He was a charismatic leader. And he is the only charismatic commissioner we have had in the last two decades. The the rest have been, uh, how can I choose my words, very, very carefully, people who have been very impressed with their own ability. I I dealt with John Stevens as well. And uh, he did pull off that trick in that you were saying the rank and file liked him, but the politicians liked him too. And how do you do that? 
Well, sometimes it's a function of experience. Don't forget that John Stevens was a highly experienced former chief constable of two forces, a man who'd led a complex inquiry in Northern Ireland. He'd done it all. He'd been head of the flying squad. He'd managed divisions. He, in, in a long and very, very uh, illustrious career, he'd, he'd Pretty, pretty much done any, anything, and there, there wasn't an officer on the street from the uh, from the youngest probationer to the oldest and sort of uh, most uh, um, disappointed chief superintendent who didn't know that John Stevens could do every bit of their job. They yeah. don't have that sort of confidence in the current people. He obviously had a nose for trouble as well because he stopped writing his column for the News of the World before the trouble hit. Um, I think Brian Paddock was there, was talking about the need for an independent process, a completely independent process when we look for the next commissioner. And and I see there has already been some talk about maybe having someone brought in from abroad, someone who's not even a police officer. What do you think about that? What's the process we need to have now? To be the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police is different to being the chief constable of Warwickshire. Uh, it, you, you need you need top rate, top level skills. You need the the ability to negotiate. You need the ability to understand the way the political process works. So you need someone with rare ability. Um, I personally, it's my personal feeling, but I personally feel that now is the time to look outside the police service for a commissioner. You do not have to be a police officer, and I stand by my early remarks about John Stevens. he was a one-off, but you do not need to be a police officer to run a very, very big organisation like the Metropolitan Police. If you're an exceptionally good manager, if you're someone who knows how to manage complex organisations, you could do damn well. You and Brian Paddock can obviously give us the view from the top. But what about the other end of the scale, the Bobby on the Beat? Isn't this all a bit bewildering for them? Hugh, please don't use that phrase, Bobby on the Beat. There haven't been Bobbies on Beats for the last ten years. Beats disappeared from divisional maps over ten years ago. Bobbies don't exist. Uh, they, the, it, it's an act of... the. the grossest propaganda by most police officers most senior police officers and certainly a lot of politicians to keep talking about bobbies on the beats there are no bobbies on beats so we'll, we'll put that aside i'm going to slap my own wrist there you go um, but the, the officers on patrol officers on patrol officers the, on patrol okay. the young the, the the officers actually on the shop floor They'll have been watching what happened this week with i suppose as much bewilderment as anyone and we spoke to the chair of the met police federation peter Smythe. The people at the top of the organisation, where clearly they have a lot of influence on policing, they don't affect how an officer does their day-to-day job. So officers are fairly relaxed about it in some ways. A lot of speculation, obviously, a lot of gossip. The question I keep getting asked is, does it affect morale? And my answer is, not really. What, what do you think should happen now? Because we've got to a point where we've now had two commissioners in less than three years. Um, it doesn't do well in terms of stability, does it? No, it doesn't. And uh, it's at a critical time with the, the, the massive reductions in policing budgets, uh, with the Olympics just around the corner now. Uh, obviously not a good time for um, a cataclysmic change at the top. Uh, so it is a, new, a need for some stability, and hopefully they can uh, appoint a new commissioner and a new team fairly quickly and uh, give them time to settle down and, and take us through the Olympics. I think that the job of commissioner now is far more political than it was a few years ago, and I think that's to be regretted. I think that will accelerate with the advent of crime commissioners, and I think that will be even worse if we have uh, virtually political appointees being parachuted in as high level as, as David Cameron has suggested today. Why? 
you know, if, if the Met needs people to advise them on budgets, then fine, bring in accountants. If it needs people to advise them on human resources issues, then bring in HR experts. But you cannot bring somebody from Barclays Bank or ICI or News International, and no matter how senior they are, and put them into an operational role in policing. That is nonsense and is a recipe for disaster. And so um, have you made those views known? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are completely against direct entry at a senior level. We, we don't see what it achieves. Uh, I know the Conservatives are very keen. They seem to think that um, business and profit answers everything. But we've all seen how many companies have gone to the wall. We've all seen what the very senior bankers have done to this country. They're not the people I want in policing. Going forward, what do we do, finally, just to get a commissioner who goes a full term? We've had two who haven't been able to serve their full terms. I, I hope they take the time. And bear in mind, they haven't got a lot of time. But, but we need to get this one right. We need to get somebody in who is going to be a safe pair of hands and who's going to steady the ship. Uh, and, but is also going to have to weather the considerable storm to come, which is going to be caused by a vastly reduced budget in terms of higher and higher demand. And bearing in the background of all this, you have a workforce who are increasingly disgruntled because of the lack of resources to do their job and, as they see it, the lack of the resources to professionally do their job. And they're also very worried about their pay and conditions and pensions. Morale is at an all-time low. It is a really hard time, and I don't envy whoever comes in, but I really hope we get the right person this time. So you see, David, your idea of bringing someone from outside doesn't go down too well with the Police Federation. It doesn't go down too well with the Police Federation, that's true. Um, But in terms of the organisation itself, the argument still stands. I mean, a lot of the chief constables and a lot of the senior officers we have in the organisation and have had for the last decade are not necessarily garlanded with success. Uh, he talks, uh, Peter Smyre talks about um, uh, private, uh, the private sector not being yeah, successful. Yeah. Well, you know, the same applies in many respects to uh, the police service. At least half a dozen chief constables, for instance, have dropped off the per- perch in the last five years for reasons of poor judgment. So it isn't just about the private sector, bad public sector good. He talked about timing, and in some ways the timing couldn't be worse, could it? Because there is this huge debate to be had about budgets and also the Olympics coming. Indeed, yes. I mean, the the, the timing is awful. Uh, You've got Windsor, Bleakstroke, Hutton bubbling in the background. Anyone that's going to manage the Olympics or at least have a a constructive overview of of the policing of the Olympics must be in post at least nine months before the kickoff, which basically means now, virtually now. Uh, the selection process, an ordinary selection process, would take at least three months. Uh, so we're, we're really running up to the wire. I saw a story which, said that, which suggested that with the uh, departure of John Yates, for example, uh, that perhaps we were a bit less safe. Is the impact as dramatic as that? No, I don't think so, because John Yates was the very able head of a very, very important department within the Metropolitan Police. But beneath him, he had deputy assistant commissioners, commanders and people on the ground who are very able. They they picked the best of the best for that department. That will still continue. All right, so we can rest, we rest easy on that score. Of course, for every 10 people out there policing, there's one studying the practice and the policies of policing. A lot to study, of course. Is the Met fit for purpose? Are the structures right? And how should the Met deal with the media in the future, given the recent problems? I put this to Professor Martin Innes of Cardiff University, recognised as one of the leading academics on the issue of policing. This arrangement um, 
this this sense of uh, mutual support that exists between police officers and has been around for decades now and is well charted in in the literature. Um, but I guess the interesting question is: Has it been heightened by particularly the development of a 24/7 news culture uh, and the demand for a continual stream of interesting stories on the part of journalists? And has it also been heightened on the police's side by the fact that? Governments have been increasingly interested in managing public confidence in the police and managing fear of crime and providing reassurance. And so I do wonder whether, you know, the the, the whole trend has been exacerbated through through um, on on both sides really. Clearly, they work together. But where are the red lines? Well, I, uh, you know, the obvious red line here is um, is around corruption, paying for stories. And I think what's interesting about the current moment is people are actually asking those sorts of questions, which I'm not sure they've ever really been brought into sharp focus before about, you know, where are the red lines? What do we think is acceptable? Um, you know, there's been a lot in the media over the past day or so about the fact that there are a lot of people in the Met's press department who are former News of the World journalists. Um, and I think yeah, okay, so possibly unhealthy, but then you've got to kind of place the counterfactual argument to that, which is, do you want police officers writing press releases? And, and probably you don't. Actually, you want police officers out on patrol, and, you know, that's kind of been accepted. David, did you write your own press releases? Interesting point, that. I did, um, because I used to get very annoyed on major operations and on ma- during major inquiries with press officers who thought they had the authority to say things about that operation or that inquiry without clearing it with me. And on one occasion, I took hold of a press release that had been drafted and tore it up and wrote my own. Um, is that because the press release was that important? Uh, press releases are critically important because what happens, you would know better than I, far better than I, uh, one or two sentences are often picked out of it and they suddenly become a headline. Uh, and they can portray uh, an entirely wrong picture of, uh, of an operation or an inquiry, and it, it can do immense damage. So I was fairly strict in the way that I dealt with press officers. And I suppose this gets us to the heart of that particular aspect of this affair, doesn't it? Because there will be some people saying, well, why do the police need to have any truck with the media at all? It's all far too close. But I assume you'd say that even that, that there does need to be a relationship because the two, in many ways, in positive ways, help each other. Yes, you, you do need uh, you need a good constructive relationship. You need press officers. Interesting, though. I mean, press officers on the ground are vital. They they feel the press who turn up at incidents and, and operations. They're absolutely vital. What you don't want is. Um, a situation where the head of a media press and media department sets the tone or sets the strategy for the force. My suspicion is that that has been happening in the Met for a long time. The, the, the tail wagging the dog. Very much so. What about those dinners? We've heard a lot about the dinners and the lunches. I mean, how much of that went on from your memory? And, and what was the point of that um, between the press and, and, and I, I, senior I was, police officers? I was amazed. Um, I, I've never actually 
in my entire life, in, in, in 35 years' service, ever, ever had a dinner with a senior executive of any newspaper. I've obviously missed out somewhere. There obviously wasn't, I obviously wasn't the sort of person they wanted to mix with. But if someone had, uh, invited you out to dinner, would you have thought, oh, that's a bit dodgy, or would you have thought, well, I can see there might be a, a good reason for it's that? It's a judgment call again. Uh, if they want to talk about the weather or we, where we went on a holiday or where, where we went to university, great. If they want to talk about anything else, it's a no-no. And one of the things that we, uh, the public has been struggling to understand, I suppose, is what looks like a very close relationship with the Murdoch papers, with News International. But I think the commissioner tried to explain this by saying, well, look at the, the share of the market that they have. If you're going to interact with the press, you're by definition going to interact with the Murdoch papers because they, they own so much of it. Do, do, do you have any sense of no, well, the, the, about News International being that, important? That, that was an interesting but... Um, <laughs> difficult argument to follow. I mean, <laughs> you know, what sort of proportion of the argument does Marie Claire have? Or, I mean, it, or Viz, you know, do, do you aim for those as well? I don't know. So Martin Innes talked about corruption. Um, let's talk about the C word. Um, everyone's worried. Are they right to be? Or are we, or are we getting overexcited no, I, about I, that? I, interesting. I mean, I am long enough in the tooth to have served during the, the late 70s in Country the aftermath then. of the... Uh, of the really serious systemic corruption in the Metropolitan Police that, that around the strip clubs in the West End. At that time, there was just awful corruption, largely because of the, uh, the, the changes that Robert Mark brought in, a really charismatic commissioner, again. Um, Wasn't there that classic quote where he said, our task is to, uh, is to catch more criminals than we employ? Yes, a, a, a wonderful man. I have a tremendous amount of time for Robert Martin, now sadly dead. But uh, the issue from my point of view is there was systemic corruption then. There isn't systemic corruption now. But I'm absolutely convinced there are corrupt officers of the Metropolitan Police. And are you pretty confident that they'll be rooted out? Ken Livingstone spoke earlier about, you know, if he was in office, he would definitely get rid of them. Jenny Jones said we've got to get rid of them too. No, th- yes, I mean... Th- the, the the way that corruption and misconduct is investigated in the Metropolitan Police is probably better, as good as, the best anywhere in the world. Um, I mean, and I've, I've been around the world a bit and seen policing elsewhere. We do it better than most. Well, the hacking inquiry will continue into the week, but that's all we have time for on this Guardian-focused podcast. I'm Hugh Muir. The producer was Peter Sale. Thank you for listening and goodbye. great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio